Hebrews chapter 10. And just uh, thought today we'd have a, I suppose, a bit of a Bible study of uh, just a, a few verses in this chapter and uh, hopefully get something uh, from them uh, for all of us. And uh, like many parts of the book of Hebrews, uh, we see that there's a contrast being made between certain aspects of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ. A comparison and a contrast is often made through the pages of the book of Hebrews of various subjects. And here we see a likeness being given, or a contrast being given perhaps more uh, specifically, between the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood of Israel, which we know was uh, 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 compounded, if you like, or con- con- uh, constructed uh, uh, by the uh, uh, the uh, tribe of Levi, particularly the um, uh, descendants of Aaron, the high priest. And that's on the one hand, they were uh, very much uh, with the, the, the formal nature of things and sacrifices and ordinances that they had to uphold. There were all manner of things that the priests had to do And then there's a comparison given between what they did and why they did it and Jesus Christ, who is described as being our high priest elsewhere in the scriptures. Now there's just a few verses that I'd like to uh, have a look at along that line there. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11, we read, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so this contrast is made here of a priesthood, And bearing in mind, of course, that we're actually talking about a priesthood that was ordained by God. This is not the the, uh, uh, ideas of uh, some natural man coming to fruition here, some religious process or whatever. This was ordained by God. You can read about how the priesthood should be back in the Old Testament particularly in the book of Leviticus, through the first, uh, well, the uh, second, third and fourth and fifth books of the Bible there, when it talks about the priesthood and the various aspects of it and so on. And so that was to be a blessing to Israel when it was to be, when it was uh, ministered uh, in the way and and in the spirit in which God had intended from the first. And the, uh, the comparison is given there of that priesthood and Christ. The high, pri- uh, the high priest of, uh, as the scripture says, of our profession. Now I'd like to just have a look at a few points in those verses. In verse 11 we read there, every priest. So firstly we read that there were many priests. And uh, uh, all of the work that had to be done by the priest, uh, uh, well, uh, it was too much for one person. So at any one time there were many priests. There were many that were involved in the service of the Lord. All of the things that had to be done by the priest, all of the sacrifices, all of the ordinances, all of the ceremonies, they were too numerous for one person. So all of the male descendants of Aaron were sanctified for that work. There were many priests, as it says here, every priest. And even then there were others of the tribe of Levi that were called in to help 
with some of the sort of perhaps lower uh, parts of the service and that sort of thing. They were required to help them and so on. So at any one time, there were many priests that were involved in the service of God. But also, as time went on, there were many priests. When a priest died, he was succeeded by his son. And it never ended. No one priest was ever able to make the final atonement. The word that uh, uh, we perhaps often associate with the, the word atonement, if you ever look it up in dictionaries, that sort of thing, is the word expiation. You may know that word if you've ever got a speeding fine. Uh, it's an expiation notice. Is uh, what comes on the envelope. Oh, not that I would know. Okay, I'm just going by what other people have told me. But the word expiation means the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or for wrongdoing and atonement. In the thesaurus, it says of the word expiation, atonement, redemption, redress, reparation, restitution, recompense, requital, purgation, uh, penance, or to make amends. And so as the high priest was to offer up his sacrifices, there was to be this concept there of atonement or expiation or making amends for the nature of mankind, for the heart of mankind. And so the high priest would live, he would live out his entire life doing his duty every single day making offerings to God for the sins of the people, every single day. And at the end of his life, it would just carry on with the next high priest because the work was never, ever finished. The atonement was never, ever whole or complete. It was never uh, repaired or or paid for or, or whatever. In fact, we read about this concept of one priest coming after another. Uh, in, uh, elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, I'll just quote to you from Hebrews 7, it says, And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. And so the, the writer here makes the observation saying that uh, the priest couldn't continue his job there because he died which on the surface of it seems like a reasonable explanation and, and excuse, really. He died, so he couldn't carry on. So there had to be a carrying on by his son and, and so on, down through the ages there. But the writer also of Hebrews goes on to talk in Hebrews chapter 7 about the priesthood of Christ, and it says, But this man, Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Because Christ continues forever. He doesn't die. His priesthood is unchangeable. It's constant. It's eternal. Likewise, we can uh, go through the scriptures and we can see that there were sacrifices that uh, were offered up by the priests. They never stopped. They always continued on. A sacrifice was offered, but sin was not put away. As soon as the sacrifice was offered, there was need for another one to be offered because sin had come into the camp again, into the heart of man again, into the uh, the life of Israel again there. 
And I get we, we, we know that there were annual feasts and so on. There was a Day of Atonement last year. There will be a Day of Atonement this year. There will be a Day of Atonement next year. It never ends. Because the sin never left Israel. Likewise, there were morning and evening sacrifices every day. So the priest would offer up a sacrifice in the morning. By the time evening came, it had to be done again. And by the time the next morning came, it had to be done again. Over and over and over. It didn't put away the sin in the heart of man. The expiation that we spoke of was always incomplete. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, it didn't do the job in a complete manner there. And bear in mind, this is the God-given way we're talking about here. What hope would you have if you went down the path of a man-made religion, a man-made sacrifice, a man-made priesthood, a man-made organization and rules of doing things? You wouldn't stand a chance of ever finding forgiveness for sin in that thing. But here we read of Christ being the fulfillment of the type or the, the forerunner of the high priest. But of course, we know he's more than that. If we read here that, uh, 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 we just read there, this man after he, in verse 12, after he had, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He's the fulfillment, not just of the priesthood, he's the fulfillment of the sacrifice as well. In fact, he's the fulfillment of all of those things. He's the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple and uh, the altar and all the things that we can see uh, throughout the Old Testament types and illustrations that are given there. They're all fulfilled in Christ. But he is also the fulfillment of the sacrifice. John the Baptist introduced the world to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his introduction to Jesus Christ, introducing him to the world there. So this one, this, this sacrifice of Christ, did what all the countless sacrifices that were offered all, by all the countless priests over countless generations could never do. The Bible says it took away sin. Just reading uh, verse 11 again uh, of uh, the natural priesthood, the, the, the Levitical priesthood there, but I'll quote to you from the Amplified Version of that Bible. And it says, Furthermore, in verse 11, every human priest stands at his altar of service, ministering daily, offering the same sacrifices over and over again. That's the thrust of this verse here. And then it says, which are never able to strip away the sins that envelop us and take them, the sins, away. When it says there, the words that are used in the uh, uh, the King James Version there, right at the end of the verse, uh, to take away sins. The word, that is a Greek word for that, I won't try to pronounce it now, but it's a word that's used four times in the New Testament. Twice it refers in type to an anchor being lifted that allows a vessel to sail away freely. And you read about that in, in the book of Acts when uh, Paul was shipwrecked that time. That same word is used twice in that chapter there. So that's two, t- two occasions. On the other two occasions, it uh, seems to refer, away, uh, refer to, to taking off or stripping off uh, a garment. 
in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, it's referring to the veil being stripped off from our eyes when we, we have a vision of the Lord, we have uh, uh, the, the infilling of the Holy Spirit and we become spiritual and so on. And here it's used in the concept of us, it's almost like it's describing us as being clothed in sin. That mankind has got clothing on now, but it's a clothing of sin. And it's almost as if, as it's written here, that this filthy, disgusting garment that we walk around dressed in, this sin, can never be put off by any natural means or by any religious means or by any philosophical means. It just can't happen. We're clothed in that no matter what we do with our lives, unless God works a miracle, unless there's a change in the nature of mankind. Now, I thought we'd uh, just explore this a little further, of this this clothing being changed, as it were. We'll go back to uh, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 41. And we're reading here of a man called Joseph, now, Joseph, for those that don't know who this particular man was, uh, was a uh, one of the sons of uh, Jacob. In fact, the Bible uh, indicates that he was the much-loved son of Jacob. He was the favourite. And uh, we see that uh, there was a, a great deal of envy in his brothers because of that, and uh, uh, that led to all sorts of uh, issues uh, uh, between uh, Joseph and his brothers. And eventually he was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. And uh, we see that eventually, further on down the track, as he ended up in Egypt, uh, as he was sold into slavery, he ended up in prison uh, for years. It wasn't just for a, a short time, but for years he was in prison there. It should be pointed out, of course, it was just something he didn't do. But there we go, he was in prison all that time there. And then by a series of miracles, he's freed from that, and he becomes the second in charge in Egypt. It was an elevation of such a grand scale that it's scarcely believable. One moment he's in prison, dressed in rags, clothed in the prison garb that he had been dressed in, no doubt, for years at that time. And I doubt very much whether anybody said to him, oh, you're looking a bit dishevelled there, Joseph. Let's get some new clothes on you. I doubt that happened in the prison case there. He was dressed as he was the lowest of low that no one cared about. And these situations arose and, and, and all of a sudden he's taken instantly from that position and elevated to the second in charge in Egypt. That's the position we read about here in uh, verse 39, Genesis 41, verse 39. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God has showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according to thy word shall all my people be ruled. You, Joseph, are now going to be ruling Egypt. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And then we read, And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand, and he put it upon Joseph's hand. And he arrayed him, Joseph, in vestures of fine linen, or silk, it says in the margin there. And he put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, 
bow the knee. And he made him a, a ruler over all the land of Egypt. And so we read here about this man Joseph. And of course we can see our minds are instantly, well, my mind certainly was instantly drawn to, to the elevation of Christ in this story. And we know that in the, in the life, uh, the times of, of Joseph there, there's an incredible type of Christ in that. How the Christ was cast down. How that he was imprisoned, as it were. How that he was cast aside from mankind and despised by them. And uh, ended up wearing grave clothes. The clothes of the prison that he was in there. He was in the pit as Joseph went down to the pit. But of course we know the scripture says he was raised into heavenly places. He was given the glory of God upon him, which he holds to this day. But not only is there a type of Christ, I believe, in this particular aspect there of uh, of, uh, of, uh, Joseph's life there, but I believe there's a tremendous type of the believer, of you and I, the spirit-filled, who by revelation, by miraculous circumstances, we're transported from the pit to glory, to the presence of God, by the miracle-working power of God. And the Bible indicates to us that we were clothed in the rags of the pit, of the grave. Joseph's prison clothing were, were filthy rags that reflected his place in that society at that time. Likewise us. Before we come to the Lord, we're clothed in the filth of this world, in the corruption of this world, in the shame of this world, in the sin of this world. And as we read back there in Hebrews, it can never be stripped off. We bear that, no matter what. Even by God ordained priests and sacrifices and ordinances and so on there, all done fearfully and, and respectfully, you know, but if the priest even did it absolutely properly for the people, it never stripped away our sin. And so it is uh, that uh, uh, in our case, even without all of that, well, what chance do we have? We bear our sin, hallelujah, but by a miracle we've been transformed. By intervention of the king, we've been transformed. Our place has been elevated now. And as we read there about uh, Joseph there, his, his transformation was so instant, immediate and complete there. We read there that he was uh, chained, uh, if you like, uh, uh, as a prisoner there. Well, that chain was taken off and uh, we read how that he had a gold chain put about his neck. Likewise, we can see in, in all of these things a parallel there. We were chained. We were chained by sin. But now we wear the, the glorious chain of the Lord, the, the, the golden chain, as it were, there. We were clothed. We were enslaved in sin. But the Bible says now that we're clothed in righteousness and we're made a saint. Hallelujah. Because the Bible says of you and I that are spirit-filled, as we'll look at now, that we're clothed with Christ. Let's go over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. And just one verse here, verse 27. Just a reminder though that Paul is talking here to the church, to the believers, the spirit-filled. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 he says, 
for as many uh, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In the amplified version of that verse we read for as many of you as were baptized into Christ into a spiritual union and communion with Christ the anointed one the Messiah have put on or clothed yourselves with Christ. So we've now clothed ourselves with Christ. That's a glorious thing. The saints now are clothed in Christ and with Christ. And that, that of course, is reflected in, in everything that is Christ. All of the glory, we're clothed in the glory. We're clothed in the majesty. We're clothed in the power. We're clothed in the love and, and the mercy and the righteousness and the honor that is Christ. We're clothed in all of those things now. A clothing that the world can never know and never have. Every good thing that there is in the scriptures clothes us now through Christ. Hallelujah. And how does that happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because we'll go through a verse now. I'll just quote it to you, if you like. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, for those that are taking notes there, we read, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. By one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. What do we read there in verse 27? For as many of you as have been baptized... Talking about the Holy Ghost experience, have put on, into Christ, have put on Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is essential. It's not just some added on thing or part of a process. It's the culmination of all things for the individual. And of course, uh, uh, we'd be remiss perhaps if we didn't uh, uh, just mention what happened to people when they were baptized in the Holy Ghost in Bible days. Acts chapter 2 says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what happened then? Well, a lot of things happened then. You know, we, we heard testify here of a, of a, of a sister uh, uh, having a, a miracle happen in her life, a miracle of healing that began uh, from that moment, uh, a miracle uh, of, of transformation that happened then. We, we think about all the various things. We, we come to appreciate and love the Word of God. We, we transform from one place to another and so on there. But one of the things that, uh, that is complete in us, when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, when we speak in other tongues, when we're transformed by that power, is that we put on Christ. We're clothed with Christ. Hallelujah. Let's go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, where we started. I should have got you to put a marker there, shouldn't I? <laughs> Still too late for that. Hebrews chapter 10. Just one more point I'd like to make from these uh, passage of, this passage of Scripture here. And again in verse 11, just the first part there, it says, and every priest standing daily, ministering and offering. The point I'd like to make here out of this is that he was standing. He couldn't sit down on the job. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. The first one that uh, uh, seems to me is apparent is that I don't think there was any seats in the temple or the tabernacle. He couldn't sit down. There was no uh, ability for him to do so. But I suppose in a sense that was just reflecting the reality of it because you tend to sit down when you've done something. 
when it's complete. But this man had to stand continuously doing the the job that he was doing there. There was no time to sit down. There was always work to be done. There was always the next sacrifice. There was always another ordinance. It never ended. And so he couldn't sit down, the scripture says. But we're going to read there in verse 12. But this man Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He sat down in heaven. What a great verse this is. There's a, there's a completeness about those two words when he sat down. There's a finality about this. Job done, finished. In fact, the words that he cried out upon the cross there, it is finished. Or is it, I think in the, uh, uh, the Greek word there is actually just one word. What Jesus cried out wasn't, it is finished. It was finished. Complete. Absolute. And then we read there, he sat down in heavenly places by the throne of God, at the right hand of God. What a glorious picture we see here of the completeness of Christ and his sacrifice and his priesthood and him being the tabernacle and him being all of the law fulfilled and all of the prophecies fulfilled, finished, completed. In verse 14, we're going to read there, uh, I think we uh, do, yeah, verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever, let's just say that again, I think about this for a moment here, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he said, has said before, so the Holy Spirit experience we have is a witness of the completeness of Christ. This is what uh, the Lord uh, said. Uh, he actually quotes here from uh, the book of Jeremiah and the fulfillment now is you being filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their, into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offerings for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. Let's, let's dig in. Let's hang on to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. Forever. And the Holy Ghost is a witness to us there. Hold fast to our glorious calling. Now there's just one other thing that uh, uh, I was trying to figure out how to work it into a talk, and uh, so I think I'll just tack it on the end of this one and see if it fits. All right. We'll go back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. And we're reading here, of course, those that know uh, the book of Acts there, when we turn to it, you'll see and be reminded that we're, we're looking at the, uh, the man called Stephen, who was one of the uh, disciples of Christ. Uh, he was uh, uh, stalwart in the early church. Uh, it seems a young man uh, coming up through the ranks. He was given various jobs and uh, he did them uh, uh, in, a, in a magnificent manner. He did it, all that was asked of him and then more, and then he began preaching. 
when he began preaching, I don't think it's a reflection on his preaching, but he, he, he suddenly wasn't very popular. And he wasn't particularly popular with the religious people of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and so on. And he actually gave a bit of an expose. They accused him of a, of a few things. And then he went through, if you ever want to read a, a, a summary of the Old Testament that is concise and, and accurate and inspiring, then have a read of, of chapter 7 because uh, 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 Stephen goes through the whole thing and he ends up by saying, well, that's the Old Testament and just as surely as natural man hated that and hated all that was God-like, you hate God as well. You took out the Son of God. You murdered him. And, of course, that... Uh, uh, that uh, inspired a great deal of wrath in the hearts of those people that were listening to him. In fact, we read about that. Uh, well, we read about what he, he said there. Um, verse 51, we'll perhaps read that. Uh, this is the conclusion. He went through the whole history of Israel, and then this is what he said to them. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom the just one, that's in capitals as Christ, you have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the uh, by the uh, disposition of the angels. So God went through a great deal of trouble to give you the law, but you didn't keep it. You have not kept it. When they heard these things, verse 54, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. I don't really know what that means but I don't think they were happy. They were furious at this man, Stephen. But then we read, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked steadfastly into heaven. Oh, that, that's amazing, that little phrase there. He didn't look at heaven. He didn't get some sort of outside view of it there. He looked into the depths of heaven, into uh, all that heaven is all about there, into the, the core of heaven, as it were. He looked into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing, standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. So we read here, as uh, as uh, Stephen uh, was dying here, because uh, eventually, they, uh, a short while later, only seconds later probably, they cast him out and they stoned him to death. But at that time, he sees Jesus. Jesus, who we had read before, went to heaven and sat down on the right hand of God. But he's no longer seated when Stephen sees him. Now why is this there? It maybe, maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's, I don't know there. But why? Why is this different phraseology used here? Why did Jesus stand up for Stephen? One Bible commentator that I read, he lived a, uh, this guy lived a few hundred years ago and he wrote, he stands up. He actively sympathized with his suffering witness or follower. And he goes on to say that the one described as the man of sorrows sees him, sees Stephen. The one described as the man of sorrows is Christ. And we know now that Christ is risen from the dead. And though he's raised 
to the heavenly throne, I believe we can see from the scriptures that that Christ hasn't forgotten what it's like to be human. He hasn't forgotten what it's like to suffer and to hurt and to fear. Jesus is not some uncaring, unthoughtful spectator of the difficulties that Stephen was going through here. Neither is he an uncaring, unthoughtful spectator of your life and the troubles that you may go through. What he did for Stephen, I believe, he will do for you and he will do for me. In your time of suffer, suffering, of hurt, of fear, of uncertainty, of loneliness, all of those things, I believe that we can see that Christ will stand for you and will stand with you, no matter what. Scripture says he'll never leave nor forsake. And again, there's a finality about there. And what a sight that was for Stephen to see him standing on the right hand of God. He was about to be murdered. And probably quite a painful death to be stoned to death. But all of a sudden, it's like he didn't see it or feel it anymore. He didn't care anymore. The heavens had opened and he'd seen the glory of God and Christ standing for him. And all of a sudden, nothing else mattered. They could have done what they liked to him and it wouldn't have bothered him at a bit. You know, it, it always gets me there when he says that he uh, he cries out, and and uh, he saw the glory, and he said, "Behold, behold!" Means have a look at that. You know, you say, "Behold, look at that." You can imagine it. They're throwing rocks at him, or, or are about to, and they're all angry and uh, and getting all worked up over it, and so on. There, and he sees the glory of God. He says, "Look." I wonder how many people turned around and looked, but they didn't see what he saw. Because he had the vision of the Spirit. He had the vision of Christ. And it carried him through. We can have that same vision. He had the same Spirit that you and I have got. Why not? Christ watches over us. He'll stand with you. He'll stand for you. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. 